You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. And if you're not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers and all our episodes ad-free. Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening. It was official. Caesar was back and Rome was his city now. The day dawns bright and perfect for a triumph, and you're in the mood for celebrating. Your brother is home from war after eight long years. Caesar, too, is home, and money flows through his open hands. He showers the people with rewards, money and grain, enough to pay your rent and feed your family for more than half the year. And that isn't all he's done. Last night at the public banquet, there were oysters and mullet cooked in delicate spices, pork and beef roasted to mouth-watering tenderness, the finest Falernian enough to drown the city. You are a plain big baker's wife, but for three nights straight you've eaten like a senator's daughter. Last night you and your husband staggered home, your arms around each other, drunk and giggling like teenagers. You hear the soldiers are angry with Caesar, that there's grumbling in the legions about the largesse he's shown to the citizens. They helped him earn that money, they plundered it with their own hands. Why is it going to others? But you are on Caesar's side. Since you were small, you've loved him. Where other senators cared only for their own power, Caesar fought for the people. When he was at war in Gaul, you ran to the square on market days to hear the crier read the latest commentaries. You thrilled at his adventures. Caesar is a war hero, larger than life, and he can do nothing wrong. Now you stand in the crowd at his triumph. You crane your neck to see the endless carts of gold, troves of gleaming Gallic treasure. Your husband is standing beside you, holding your two-year-old daughter. Behind the carts come the soldiers, thousands strong, marching in lockstep. Their footfalls shake the earth, and their song splits the skies. Men, they sing, lock up your wives and daughters, for here comes the bald adulterer. They list Caesar's lovers and all his great deeds in the battlefield and in the bedroom. You and your husband split your sides laughing, and around you everyone cheers. Then the army sings at the top of its lungs all together. If you do right, you'll be punished, but if you do wrong, you'll be king. 
A cloud passes in front of the sun and the people around you keep laughing and cheering, but suddenly there's something unpleasant beneath it. You're standing in a crowd of false smiles, desperate grimaces stretched over abject fear. Caesar rides by just then in his gleaming chariot, his magnificent cloak flapping in the wind, his teeth gleaming out of his crimson painted face. The ominous roar of the army grows louder. It shakes the stones beneath your feet. Dread uncurls in your heart. Then the sun returns. You watch him pass, coins scattering in his wake, and you wonder what's wrong with you. You wonder what will happen now. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. In our last episode, Caesar stayed to fight Cleopatra's battle in Alexandria and wound up barricaded in a palace with her for 10 months while waging one of the toughest campaigns of his life. That was their first date. That was an epic first date, man. I know. I mean, I just kind of can't just go to coffee with somebody anymore. (laughs) Then, once he'd won, he installed Cleopatra on the throne and lingered for three months, partying with her until dawn, having constant mind-blowing sex, and sailing with her up the Nile in an ultra-luxury yacht, taking in the incredible incredible sights of ancient Egypt because nothing demonstrates they are totally here for the common people like sailing past them in a giant luxury yacht flotilla. Vote Caesar and Cleopatra 2020, Jenny. (laughs) (laughs) They're in it for the common man. (laughs) (laughs) It's a total message to the common people right there. Eventually, Caesar had to go back to Rome and two weeks after he left, Cleopatra gave birth to his son she named after Caesar, Ptolemy the 15th Caesar or Caesarian, which means little Caesar. I mean, I feel like I should make some jokes about a certain pizza place, but I won't. Try to restrain yourself. I will try, but it is very difficult. Rain it back, Jen. Raining it back, guys. I'm raining it back. And it was probably about time both Caesar and Cleopatra returned to the real world and came out of their sex haze because they both had work to do. This war had wreaked financial havoc on both their countries. One of the first things Cleopatra did was eliminate any remaining threats to her stability because she'd had to fight for her country once and she was not about to be put in that position again. Just to remind you, she was thrown out of her own court, out of her own country. It was by rebelling courtiers, basically. Pretty much. She was not going to be in that position again. But her court was still a viper's nest of unreliable courtiers. One benefit of the last war, though, was to show very clearly who was and wasn't on her team. So she fired up a bloody round of prescriptions, confiscating fortunes as she eliminated her enemies. There was also work to be done in restoring the city, clearing out debris and barricades and making repairs. The war had left its mark on all parts of the city, but Alexandria emerged even more shiny and beautiful and twinkly than before. Cleopatra had profited immensely from allying with Caesar. Stacy Schiff, in her book Cleopatra a Life, tells us that, quote, Caesar had gone further out on a limb than any other Roman for an Egyptian sovereign. Ptolemy Thirteenth, Pothinos, and Achilles were all dead. Theodotus was in exile. Our Sinaway in Roman custody, Caesar had effectively eliminated every one of Cleopatra's rivals to the throne. She reigned supreme more securely than she had done four years previously, more securely than had any Ptolemy in several generations. But one thing Caesar didn't do was let Cleo off the hook for her father's crushing debt. Oh, Caesar, she even gave you a baby. Come on, she gave you an heir. It just kind of makes me blink. I'm just like, wait, what? You just went through all that and you're not even going to let her off the hook for the debt? Cleopatra still had to pay that bill that her dad had racked up all that time ago. Man, if only he'd spend less time flute monstering and more time paying his debts. I know, but no, flute monster gonna flute monster. So Cleopatra did pay the bill 
But when she did, it left her entire country broke. So Cleopatra moved Egypt off the gold standard. Previously, coinage in Egypt worked like this. A coin worth five ounces of silver, say, was actually made of five ounces of silver. The worth stamped on the coin was the same as the type and amount of metal in the coin. What Cleopatra did was devalue her own coinage. She reduced the amount of silver in the Egyptian drachma to match that of the Roman denarius, even as the value stamped on individual coins and their worth in the marketplace stayed the same. So now they weren't solid silver. Think of them as silver plated, which is kind of how we have our money today. Yeah, I think it is, right? Well, yeah, I mean, my pound coins have like gold colored plating, but they're not solid gold. <laughs> like they're not a whole pound of gold either. No, exactly. Or my 50 P's aren't 50 pence worth of silver. Cleopatra's move from the gold standard made it easier to trade with Rome and restored economic stability to her country. Cleopatra handled her shit. Meanwhile, over in Rome, Caesar had left Mark Antony in charge. Oh, boy. <laughs> and Mark Antony had been having a really good time. How good a time, Daddy? Was it as good a time as you had last night? <laughs> <laughs> You know, I think it was on par, actually. <laughs> Please tell me he was dancing to Rihanna at 5 a.m. I couldn't keep up with Mark Antony. Like, nobody has as good a time as Mark Antony at 5 a.m. He had been drinking and feasting to extreme excess, and when he wasn't drunk, he was constantly hung over. Oh, bless Mark. I mean, he just, you know, he just doesn't know his limits. Cicero tells us that Mark Antony interrupted a meeting with the tribunes to vomit in the middle of the forum, quote from Cicero, vomiting filled his own bosom and the whole tribunal with fragments of what he had been eating, reeking with wine. I love it. I feel like this is the only reason we're doing this entire series is because you found that quote. <laughs> I mean, it just definitely makes me see Mark Antony in a different light. Like now, every time I think of him, I do think of vomiting. It's just like, that's the association that I make. And that was the least of the embarrassing things Antony got up to. He apparently rode around Italy in a Gallic war chariot, pulled by horses usually, but sometimes lions, followed by a huge caravan of his drunken friends, his current mistress, who was an actress, which was scandalous, and for some reason, his mom. He also openly and flagrantly slept with the wives of senators, which made him totally an apple. What is the apple falling from the Caesar tree? An apple that did not fall very far from that Caesar tree. It made, right. It made him an apple that didn't fall far from the Caesar tree, is what I'm trying to say. And I mean, chilling with his mother is a very Caesar-esque, because remember, young Caesar had to go to his mom quite a few times to get himself out of trouble, or at least once that we know of. Right, his mom bailed him out from some serious problems with Sulla. So Mark Antony had his mom in his hit parade. She was part of his entourage, and good for him! Valuing women, I appreciate this. He could have been a dick, but he wasn't, because he was a hot mess. I wouldn't go so far as to say Mark Antony wasn't a dick. Or that he valued women, but let's move on from there. <laughs> Cicero had returned to Rome, only to be told that he couldn't be pardoned without specific word from Caesar. Mark Antony, you know, put on his man in black from the Princess Bride outfit and kept telling Cicero, nice work, Cicero. Good night. I'll probably knife you in the morning. And this went on for months and months because psychological torture is something that Mark Antony enjoyed. Specifically of Cicero. Here's the thing, Jenny. Nobody knew where Caesar was. He was not answering letters because he was in a love shack. And he was not telling anyone whether or not Cicero could be pardoned. Or or anyone else who happened to have sided with Pompey. The atmosphere in Rome was tense. Cleopatra had started her new reign with bloody prescriptions, and there was nothing saying Caesar wouldn't do the same. The shoe could drop at any moment. And Rome was facing its own economic crisis. The real estate market had tanked during Caesar's civil war because nobody wanted to live in Rome or anywhere near it. Suddenly, everyone was upside down on their mortgage. 
A movement to eradicate debt was building steam, and the cry for new tablets echoed throughout the city. The Romans used wooden tablets covered with a layer of wax to keep records. The debt relief movement wanted those tablets literally wiped clean. So... As you can imagine, rioting broke out in the streets over the debt. Mark Antony tried to suppress the riots using brutal tactics, killing 800 protesters at one particularly violent event. This, surprising absolutely no one, did not calm things down. I mean, Mark Antony, that's just literally pouring gasoline onto that tire fire. I do kind of feel like Mark Antony, among his talents, are not included calming things down. I don't get the sense that he is good at that. I feel like Mark Antony is the guy you send in when you want things to get completely out of hand. No, he's definitely the guy who you send in when you're like, all right, you need things to get wild and crazy. I'm here. Let's go. I got my unicorn floaty and a big old giant margarita. Cask of wine. Yeah, amphora, amphora of finest wine. Meanwhile, some of Caesar's legions had been sitting idle in the countryside of Italy while Caesar was away, including the Black Sheep Ninth and the legendary Tenth, which had been spending way too much time with the Ninth lately. The Ninth was starting to rub off on the Tenth, and an idle, impatient group of Roman soldiers is a problem. Left alone long enough with nothing to do, they start doing things like looting and pillaging under their own steam, and nobody likes that. So this was the state of Rome that Caesar returned to. An economic crisis, his own legions pillaging the countryside and everything covered in Mark Antony's barf. Because, (laughs) (laughs) because why not? And he rolled up to the city like everything was fine. He finally pardoned Cicero, whose panties were all in a bunch at this point. I mean, I can't blame him for that at this point. It's like, how long has he been doing the Mark Antony, I'll most likely kill you in the morning dance? I would be ready to please be pardoned. I agree. I'm sorry, Cicero. I'm being too mean to you. I mean, I'm usually the one who's mean to him. He ruined middle school for you and so many other preteen girls. So anyway, Cicero finally, after all this time, got pardoned. And Caesar also got himself appointed dictator again, this time for 10 years. Mark Antony was renewed as master of the horse, and he barfed all over everything to mark the occasion because that is what Mark Antony does. I mean, he did drink first. He did have a big old party before he barfed all over everything. Right. Well, I hope so. I mean, that's the fun part of barfing all over everything. It's the excess that leads to the barfing. Meanwhile, those troublesome legions of Caesars, including the 9th and 10th, had been getting increasingly violent out in the countryside. Several times before Caesar's return, others had gone to try to talk sense into them and barely escaped with their lives. And when the legions heard Caesar was home, they marched angrily towards Rome. People in Rome started panicking that the rebellious legions would attack the city. But Caesar didn't seem worried about that. Against everyone else's advice, he rode out to meet them in person. He rode into their camp without announcement, taking the legions by surprise, as usual, because this is his playbook and he knows how to do this. Caesar just never announces himself. Wherever he goes, he takes everyone by surprise. Everyone's just like, oh, Julius Caesar, what are you doing here? Here's the thing with Caesar. You can't throw a party for Caesar because he's not going to announce he's coming. He'll just throw the best party for himself once he's there. He's not going to show up on time. He's going to show up way early and just everyone's going to be extremely surprised. No, he's like a wizard, Jenny. A wizard never is late and never is early. They arrive precisely when they mean to. Caesar. Caesar. Wizard. (laughs) (laughs) BC wizard. So he basically just (laughs) materialized in this camp in a puff of smoke, surprising everyone. He was just a wizard. He must have had the ability to materialize and dematerialize. I think that really explains a lot of things. He didn't need a Vitellius this time. He was the wizard. There's no Vitellius. Vitellius, well, maybe Vitellius exists outside the timeline anyway, so we don't know. He's behind everything. <laughs> I love that there's like this one footnote from one source. So he's exploded across everything. 
<laughs> I was going to say, I think Vitellius is like way in the future, but then I was like, no, 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 no. Vitellius exists outside the timeline. <laughs> totally. Guys, donate to our Patreon and we'll do an episode of Vitellius. <laughs> oh my God, we totally should explain this whole Vitellius thing because I don't even know who this guy is. I feel like he was Claudius's fixer. He was the court wizard. <laughs> 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 We've been over this. Anyway, after Caesar appeared in a puff of smoke, the legions crowded around him and Caesar turned to them and calmly asked them, what do you guys want? Like, come on, what's this all about? The legionnaires listed their grievances. The money and land grants they were supposed to get had never materialized and demanded Caesar release them from their service. They were gambling that Caesar would need them to go fight Cato, who was still in Africa. They expected Caesar to bargain with them, to shower them with money and land in an effort to keep their loyalty. Instead, Caesar shrugged and said, okay, you guys are discharged. The check will be in the mail. This shocked the legions. Some of them immediately announced they wanted to re-volunteer. They did not keep their chill at all. Caesar refused to let them. He adopted a slightly sad, reproachful tone as if they kind of disappointed him. He was sort of like, you know, disappointed dad here. He totally was. And if you've ever disappointed your mom or your dad, it's not when they get mad at you that you get upset. It's when they're like, I'm not angry, Jen. I'm just disappointed. That's like the worst. I actually feel like a bit upset just saying that to myself. <laughs> this is total emotional manipulation. 101. I mean, he was like, God, Mark Antony, all you had to do was go out there and tell them that I would be disappointed. And yet you let this go on and on. So when Caesar turned around to leave, the legions begged him to take them back. And Caesar considered it, he hemmed and hawed and let himself be persuaded. Oh, persuade me, legions, please. Well, it's just like, well, uh, I don't really want to take you back. Okay, fine, if it'll get you to stop talking about it. Persuade me, please keep stroking my ego like the cat I am. Oh, Caesar. Her. <laughs> Finally, Caesar said, okay, I'll take you guys back, everyone except the 10th. And the 10th, you know, the good kids of Caesar's army, were shocked. The 10th was a legion of Hermione's. Yeah, they were. And they were Caesar's favorite legion. We have our hand up, Caesar. Pick us, please. Call on us, please, 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 please. What does this mean he's not going to take us back? We have all the right answers. We are the Hermione's. We do the right thing. And this was a total mindfuck for the overachieving legion. Caesar then reminded them of all the extra honors he'd given them and said he was especially hurt that they, of all people, would rebel against him. So he'd take back all the rest, but he was definitely discharging the 10th. It's been real, guys. Thanks for your service. I'll Venmo you the money. The 10th were so distraught that they actually asked Caesar to decimate them. And we talked about decimation a few episodes ago. It's where every 10th man in a Roman legion is beaten to death by his peers in a very extreme form of punishment. The 10th asked Caesar to decimate them and then take the survivors back. That is hardcore. It's hardcore. And even when the survivors are taken back, the legion is stripped of its honors and they're not allowed to actually be part of the regular army. They are kind of sent to followers camp. They're made to sit in like the naughty section of the camp. They're in the Gemonian steps of the camp. <laughs> Every Roman army camp has the Gemonian stairs. Mm -hmm. Anyway. <laughs> Caesar gradually allowed himself to be persuaded because of course he did. This was his plan all along. He didn't decimate the 10th, but he did take names of all the ringleaders. It said he made sure these men were put in the most dangerous positions during his coming campaigns. 
Speaking of coming campaigns, Caesar had a standing date to meet Cato in Africa. After Pompey had lost, Cato had fled to the African provinces. Their surviving best men Uh. had come with him. (laughs) So had Pompey's two sons, Sextus and Gnaeus, and Labienus, yeah, we have to pronounce it that way, Caesar's former right-hand man from Gaul. When Cato got to Africa, he hooked up with King Juba of Numidia, an old ally of Pompey's who agreed to help him fight against Caesar. Juba had a beef with Caesar that went all the way back to when Caesar was a public prosecutor and had yanked on Juba's beard during a trial. Caesar, I'm going to come over there and rub your bald spot. How would you like that? (laughs) Oh, he'd be so pissed. Also with Cato was an accomplished general named Scipio. Scipio had served as consul with Pompey at one point. But not that Scipio. You mean the Scipio that fought Hannibal. Also confusingly named Scipio Africanus. Not that Scipio. Different Scipio. They're all named Scipio Africanus. Probably because they were related to each other would be my guess. No, it's because they fought battles in Africa. That's how you get that one particular nickname. Like Germanicus is because he fought battles in Germany. No, it's because he was the Manicus. Move on. Oh, right. Yeah, sorry. Forgot. How could I forget? Our blue-eyed <laughs> prince. Our golden god. Our golden god. <laughs> anyway, moving on. Scipio, not that Scipio, had served as consul with Pompey at one point and had been a strong anti Caesar crusader while Caesar was in Gaul. He had a raging anti-Caesar agenda. Yeah, he did. He did. You could see it from across the room. Made a lot of people uncomfortable. (laughs) All right, you've done enough. You don't have to go any further into it. I'm sorry. I talked about the raging Caesar agenda and we're all supposed to not mention it, but I talked about it (laughs) and now I'm going to move on. Now, he led the forces against Caesar while Cato took refuge in Utica because if there was one thing Cato was good at, it was basically riling people up and then sitting the ensuing battle out. With his dirty feet all over your seats, just ruining the upholstery. Yeah. Because Cato refused to wear shoes. Cato was also not cutting his hair at the moment or his beard because he made a pledge not to ever do that until Caesar was defeated. Caesar mustered his troops and set out for Africa, but there was still a serious ship shortage. He gave orders that his men bring nothing except what was absolutely essential. He needed every inch of storage space to pack in more men and horses. Pretty much he had a tiny home situation here. Caesar's convoy set out for Africa, but strong winds quickly separated the ships. Caesar landed near the enemy-held town of Hadramantum, about 100 miles south of Carthage on the northeastern North Africa coastline. Sources tell us that he stumbled as he got off the boat and fell to his knees on the beach. A bad omen, but he managed to cover it by clutching handfuls of sand and saying, Africa, I have hold of you. I mean, I'm not going to lie. A lot of times when I get off boats or planes, I kind of want to do the same thing. Africa, I have hold of you. (laughs) Just ground. I have hold of you. Thank you for still being here. Whatever continent you happen to be on. I mean, it's a positive spin on an embarrassing situation of falling on your face, which I mean, I occasionally fall on my face and it never occurred to me to, to say that. But now I will. London, I have hold of you. London's like, please stop groping me. Absolutely. It's like, please stop, Jen. You know better. This was the first hint that maybe something was off with Caesar's health. It would not be the last one. As always, because it's a normal Tuesday, Caesar was outnumbered. Scipio had as many as 10 legions, which may have been as many as 30,000 men, plus King Juba's javelin-throwing cavalry, which were said to be outstanding horsemen who rode without bridles, which is a pretty cool achievement. Caesar had landed on the beach with just 150 cavalry and 3,500 infantry. He was still waiting for the rest of his fleet to catch up. Oh, and he had no supplies. The one advantage he had was that of surprise. Surprise! (laughs) Once again, it was winter and no one 
even read the commentaries. I don't know why he bothered writing and publishing the commentaries. Nobody seems to use them as a guide for anything. I just don't understand why people continue to be surprised by Caesar doing the same thing over and over again. Like, this actually is starting to baffle me at this point. I don't know, Jenny. Maybe they just were not that interested. Maybe it was just too much aggrandizement. They were like, oh, no more Caesar. Does Caesar have anything to say about that? Is he coming on this episode? No, you're still in trouble from the last episode. (laughs) Maybe he'll come back for our next episode. We'll see. This is actually exactly how I could have foreseen this going. I write an entire multi-episode arc on Julius Caesar, and then he won't talk to me. He's a very sensitive (laughs) soul when you tease him too much. I mean, et tu, Jenny? (laughs) Look, Caesar's been through a lot worse, okay? If you can't take this, then you just can't take anything, Caesar. Just stop being such a delicate flower. Just go home and nurse your wounds. At two, Jenny. Oh, too soon. (laughs) It's been 2,000 years, and yet it is still too soon. Caesar made his base camp at a town called Respina and went out with a large party to forage because that's what armies do. They forage when they need food. Right, because Caesar didn't have any supplies, so they had to go and forage. Caesar had about 400 cavalry and 120 archers with him, and he ran into a group of 8,000 formidable Numidian cavalry along with 1,600 horsemen from Germany in Gaul. Germany and Gaul were known for their horsemen, so these were pretty badass, I'd imagine. These were terrifying German dressage riders and the Numidian Lukman no-hands cavalry, and it's pretty intimidating. I'd be intimidated. They're doing all kinds of horse tricks. They're doing the piaffs and the passage and the collected canter. It's really a shit show. This group was led by Labianus. Labianus. Every time. We're just going to have to call him that. I mean, that's possibly not how his name was pronounced. Maybe not. So Labianus was Caesar's ex-right-hand man from Gaul. He was one of the people who chose not to cross the Rubicon with Caesar. And at this point in time, he had Caesar outnumbered more than 20 to 1. Caesar was in trouble. To make matters worse, Caesar was still waiting for his more experienced forces to arrive at this point. Most of his soldiers with him were noobs. He and his troops were quickly surrounded and on the verge of panicking. This time, though, when one of the standard bearers tried to flee, Caesar caught hold of that guy, turned him around, and gave him a shove back toward the front line, saying, Look, that's where the enemy are. I love that part because there was a part in the previous episode about the Battle of Pharsalus where a standard bearer tried to flee the battlefield and Caesar tried to stop him and he almost got stabbed. This guy almost stabbed him on his way out. Remember that part, Jen? I do remember that part. I mean, the thing about Caesar was he definitely generaled from the front lines. He was super hands-on. He's really like micromanaging everybody. And if anyone is trying to flee, he's going to just grab you and push you back in the other direction. Totally. If the ship was going down, he was going down with it. Lady displayed his hatred of Caesar here, heckling Caesar's troops. And this is a quote from the African War. Quote, What are you up to, you raw recruit? Really ferocious, aren't you? Are you another one of those taken in by his fine words? He's taken you into a tough spot, hasn't he? I feel really sorry for you. Upon which the guy who was heckling said he was no raw recruit, but a veteran of the 10th Legion. For some reason, he's there and not with the 10th Legion, who's like on a boat at this moment, and stabbed Labienus's horse, which we do not approve of. Obviously, he's there because these are the people on the front lines. And he's one of the people who Caesar was like, I got your name. You're going to the front lines. You're going with the noobs. Oh, right. He's one of those rabble rouser commanders. So anyway, Caesar managed to get his troops out of that mess, but he survived by a thread. Anyone less experienced would have been wiped out entirely. And he didn't manage to gather his supplies, which had been the whole point of this mission. Mission fail. Oh, he got a big fail stamp on there. He cried a little bit. Bummer. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, Stakuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. But he did live. See, if he'd had his tenth with him, his Legion of Hermione's, it would not have happened that way. Yeah, he just had the, like, crappy tenth Legion rabble-rousers who he was trying to kill off. Weeks passed, Scipio camped in the plain below Respina and deployed his army for battle each morning, hoping to tempt Caesar into a fight. And again, he never read the commentaries because Caesar did this many times. But Caesar was too savvy to fight Scipio on his own chosen ground. I mean, you feel bad for Scipio at this point. He gets his legions all dressed up, all shiny, all maneuvery, and Caesar just doesn't want to come out and play. Look, at least the horses and the dressage team get to practice. I bet they set up these, like, incredible things for the horses to jump and play, and they have a good time. They set up a bunch of arenas with the dressage letters and judges, and they were having a big old competition down there and just daring Caesar to come in and try and wreck it. And Caesar didn't want to wreck it. No, Caesar was like, this is not the time to be wrecking. They had their tops and tails on. Oh, I bet they had beautiful braids in the horse hair, manes and tails. This really shiny coats. Oh, man, I wish I could have been there. I do not want to be there. I just want to imagine it from the future. <laughs> the Numidians wouldn't have been using bridles. It would have been really impressive. Like Numidian, look ma, no hands dressage. It would have been incredible. It would have been. Scipio's forces picked on Caesar's foraging parties, and the foraging parties fought them off. In this way, they tested each other's strength. But Caesar himself did not come out again for battle, or even to walk the walls. Scipio found Caesar's silence unnerving. I mean, I would. No, he doesn't want to come out and watch the dressage. He just, it's so disheartening. He didn't want to play, and he also doesn't even want to, like, talk. Like, he doesn't even want to taunt him, like, Monty Python style, like, ah, try storming this castle. Nope. Caesar mainly hung out at his headquarters, nonchalantly issuing orders and making predictions that turned out to be spot on. Everyone marveled at his knowledge of warfare. I mean, why? The commentaries! 
Oh, Caesar. We're so impressed. Actually, the commentaries ended sometime in the Alexandrian War, so we're not on the commentaries now. No, but what I'm saying is, like, the commentaries existed. Everyone knew that Caesar was kind of, this was what he was good at. It's like, oh, Caesar, we're so impressed that you're so good at your job that you've been telling us for years that you're so good at. Oh, are you saying that people keep underestimating Caesar? No, I'm just saying that, like, people don't seem to estimate him at all. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe he had a chip on his shoulder about that. I bet he does. Meanwhile, Caesar's ships of troops were slowly finding him and streaming into his camp. Caesar was having smithies and armories set up. He was sending couriers to Sicily for supplies, particularly of timber, lead, and iron. And he was sending out his ships to import grain. Yeah, Caesar could basically do this in his sleep at this point. He needed to, like, create an air of mystery, of, like, distraction, so you weren't looking over here while all the troops were storming in and bringing in all the supplies he needed. Yeah, I guess if everyone's so concerned about the eerie silence behind the walls. Mm-hmm. In Utica, Cato was holed up with one of Pompey's sons, Nias. Cato was constantly haranguing this kid about all the accomplishments his father had racked up at his age and following it up by urging the boy to live up to Pompey's excellent reputation and go out and call on his father's old allies for troops and supplies so that he could go get Caesar. Finally... Possibly just to get away from Cato because Cato is just being insufferable. I mean, when isn't he? I just read this and I'm like, oh man, sucks being Nias right now. Nias put together a fleet of 30 ships and set out for Mauritania. Nias approached the town of Oscurum, and at first the people appeared friendly, like they might let him in so he could supply up, but when Nias got close enough, they immediately attacked, driving Nias's troops back to their ships. Nias did not try again. He was like, nope, done. This is nope. This is getting on the nope rocket. And he did not go back to Utica. Instead, he ran. Meanwhile, King Juba was busy capturing elephants. Oh, this is why that name was so familiar. I know it's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, we actually talk about the upcoming battle in War Elephants Part 2. So King Juba gathered somewhere between 64 and 120 elephants. The upcoming battle where these elephants get deployed, as Jenny mentioned, is one we highlight in one of our criminally underlistened to earlier episodes, War Elephants Part 2, Land Pirates of the Ancient World. And if you listen to that episode, you'll know that these elephants were not trained war elephants. But Juba planned to use them in battle anyway. War Elephants Part 2, by the way, is my favorite episode that we've done so far. Is it? I think so, except Hound of Ulster and Locusta and Germanicus. So it's like a four-way tie. I mean, we haven't done that many episodes. Okay, they're all my favorite episode. (laughs) You love them all equally. But War Elephants Part 2 just fills me with joy every time I listen to it. I'm I'm constantly listening to it by myself and laughing. It's one of our earlier episodes where I feel like we really got into our groove as podcasters, and it's a lot of fun. And War Elephants are just so fascinating, and I was the person who was like, I don't want to hear any more about War Elephants. And this episode completely changed my mind. So if you're on the fence because War Elephants in military history, A, how did you find us? And B, you don't need to be because the story is really good. Yeah. Anyway, putting untrained war elephants into battle was a huge gamble. War elephants were old tech at this point. It was rare for armies to field them. One reason was that elephants had proven undependable in battle, prone to frenzy and caused damage to their own armies as much as their enemies. If. And ancient history fangirl's position on this is this is true if you don't have experienced mahouts or drivers and if your war elephants are not well trained. Ancient history fangirl has an official position on war elephants. 
I love that about us. I mean, we have official positions on so many things, but I'm glad we have one about elephants. I mean, every podcast should have an official position on war elephants, and this this is ours. We're just taking the stand right now. So over and over again, in battles, hundreds of years before Caesar's time, war elephants were crucial in turning the tide of war, when they were trained and fielded by generals who knew how to use them properly. Have we laid the ground that this is not going to go well? No spoilers. <laughs> Have we dropped enough hints? <laughs> that is going to surprise nobody. I seriously doubt that the problem here was that King Juba just did not know that you can't use untrained elephants for war. The Numidians were well acquainted with war elephants and had used them in battle for centuries. I think Juba knew how dumb it was to try using untrained elephants, but he was probably hoping that just the sight of his elephants would cause Caesar's infantry to freak out and his cavalry to collectively stampede off the battlefield. But actually, Caesar's troops were well acquainted with war elephants too. Caesar had used them before in Gaul, although there's no mention of them in the commentaries. Our theory or at least my theory, is that he wanted to keep the emphasis on the troops in the commentaries and not give credit to the elephants because elephants can't read and elephants can't vote. Saying that I conquered Gaul using elephants sort of takes away from like how much he did and his troops did. Yeah, and it's really unfair because the elephants are just as courageous and brave and deserve just as much credit. Absolutely. And the people who fielded those elephants, the mahouts and the ground crews that elephants had were just as courageous and brave and they get written out. Absolutely. I totally agree. So... Anyway, Caesar had a plan for Juba's elephants. He shipped in some circus elephants from Rome and had his infantry train with them and got his cavalry horses used to being around them. So by the time of this battle, they were prepared. The deciding battle occurred at the town of Thapsus. The city was in a strong position, situated on a promontory between the sea and a salt lake. There were two approaches to the town, both of which were narrow and easily defended. Working fast, Caesar's army built a fort to block the easiest route, so Scipio force-marched his army at night around the saltwater lake to come at the town from the back. Meanwhile, King Juba stayed in the camp just outside the easier route to cut off Caesar's escape. On the day of the battle, Caesar's legions were eager for a fight. They were just spoiling for one. They were chomping at the bit. They were. Caesar tried to hold them back, telling them that he didn't approve of reckless slaughter. And he barely managed to hold the line until a trumpeter started blowing his horn without an order from Caesar. The trumpets were used as a method of communication. I think that's true in modern armies today also, uh, sometimes. Like the Carnixes in ancient Gaul. And it's really important, like, I know very little about military history before this podcast but like we talked about why the gold eagles and the standards were important and this is also why trumpeters were important in the army. Yeah, because it's really hard to communicate with a whole bunch of people in a really large group like this. And noise, the noise in the battlefield, the shouting, the confusion and chaos. I'd love to do a mini-so just on battlefield communication in the ancient world. That would be fascinating. And our listeners could make that happen. That's right, ancienthistoryfangirl.com. Subscribe to our Patreon. So anyway, this is this is unauthorized horn blowing, and that is a problem. So the line surged forward, and just then, Julius Caesar had an epileptic fit. So here's where we're going to pause this battle. The unauthorized horn blowing is happening. It's splitting the air. The horses are surging forward. The elephants are trumpeting and surging forward, too. And everyone is rushing towards this battle, and arrows and slingstones 
drones are starting to fly through the air and we're just gonna pause everything right here. Oh boy, I'm really anxious, Jenny. I don't know if I can pause right now. We're pausing right now and we're gonna talk about Caesar's epileptic fits because it's time. Yes, I agree, it's time. We've been not talking about it for a long time because he doesn't want us to, I could just tell. Throughout his life, Caesar was known for his good health and boundless energy, even now in his 50s. But Caesar also had a secret health problem. There are four documented cases that I know of of what were called seizures. Plutarch called it distemper in the head. Suetonius tells us that Caesar was, quote, twice attacked by the falling sickness during his campaigns. The symptoms included dizziness, headaches, disorientation, and weakness in the limbs. There are a few details in the ancient sources about these attacks, but a research paper by doctors Francesco M. Galassi and Hutan Ashrafian, and I probably mispronounced those names, I'm sorry if either one of those people are listening, pinpointed other events in Caesar's life that might have been seizures in disguise. One of them was an instance in Plutarch where Caesar was so overcome by one of Cicero's speeches that he trembled and dropped some papers out of his hands. So a lot of the time, Caesar's affliction has been called epilepsy, but I'm not sure that historians kind of agree with that. This article proposed the idea that actually what Caesar was suffering from was mini strokes. Other possibilities I've seen proposed include malaria, parasitic tapeworms, celiac disease, hypoglycemia, past head injuries, and brain tumors. This is one of the few instances where we have some detail. Suetonius tells us that, quote, as Caesar was marshalling his army, his usual sickness laid hold of him, and he at once aware that it was beginning before his already wavering senses were altogether confounded and overpowered by the malady, was carried to a neighboring tower where he stayed quietly during the battle. I kind of feel like you need to reset the scene for us, Jenny. What was going on while this was happening? His army has just been chomping at the bit to surge forward, and Caesar has been running up and down the line trying to get people to calm down and not move too fast because if the army surges forward without organization, then that can just cause a giant disorganized problem. A lot of the time, battles get lost that way. And Caesar leads from the front. Like, we've seen him do this all the time. So he must have been in a really public position when he got hit by this seizure or whatever it was. And the one thing he really couldn't do was let his troops know that he has any kind of affliction or sickness. So a seizure in the ancient world was seen as a curse from the gods. So one thing that Caesar definitely couldn't let anyone see happen was him having a seizure because seizures were seen as a curse coming down on him from the gods. And that would be just the sort of thing that would turn an army into quite superstitious and terrified because they would be looking and seeing their commander falling ill to some plague from the gods. It would be a terrible, terrible portent. And the Romans were incredibly superstitious. So this kind of thing would not be okay. Right. He really would have had to somehow sneak off that battlefield and make sure that nobody realized what was going on with him. He was good at sneaking, though, so I feel like he must have had this. But Caesar's army did okay without him. He had trained his archers and slingers to take aim at the elephants, and they did, sending them stampeding back into their own army. And if you want more detail on how that all went down, we're not going to give it to you here. You're going to have to go listen to War Elephants Part 2, Jenny's favorite episode besides four others. (laughs) Right. Meanwhile, another group of elephants attacked a legion in the center, and they stood up to the charge so courageously that ever after they wore the elephant as their symbol. So one cool thing about this battle was no elephants were actually killed in this battle. All the elephants survived. Yay! That makes me so happy. I know. How rare is it that something like that happens in the ancient world? Caesar's army routed the elephants, and 
and then attacked Juba's camp. Since Caesar wasn't there to hold them back because he was busy having a seizure, his troops killed everyone they could find, even people who surrendered. This was against Caesar's orders, but Caesar wasn't there to rein them in. The troops were in such a battle frenzy that they even killed some of their own officers who tried to get them to calm down. Scipio escaped in a ship, but committed suicide later when one of Caesar's squadrons intercepted him. King Juba escaped with one of the best men. Ugh. Uh. A guy named Petraeus. They entered into a weird suicide pact where, I swear to God, this is real. They fought to the death for some reason. Petraeus apparently killed King Juba and then had a slave kill him. That's a new one, Jenny. I know. I don't know why they did this, but I'm sure that they felt justified in doing it because that's what they did. And as for Cato, he was in Utica, sitting this one out in typical Cato fashion. The closer you get to Utica, the more you can smell Cato's filthy feet. And I'm not being mean on people who have bad foot odor. I know I get that on a sunny day. I'm sure you can smell my feet a day's march from Utica away sometimes. But he was having dirty feet at people. He was doing it to make a point. Absolutely. When Cato heard the news that Caesar had won at Thrapsus, he closed the gate of the city, arranged for transport for all who wanted to flee, working day and night to help the citizens save themselves. When one of his compatriots offered to go to Caesar and beg him for mercy, Cato forbid it. And this is a quote from Plutarch. Quote, for if I were willing to be saved by the grace of Caesar, I ought to go to him in person and see him alone. But I am unwilling to be under obligations to the tyrant for his illegal acts. Just a heads up before we go any further, this section is going to talk a lot and in detail about somebody who has an urge to self-harm. And that might be tough for someone to hear if you have dealt with that in your life with people that you care about. I know Jen and I both have. Just a heads up that that is coming up. Cato went home that night and he acted like it was another normal Tuesday. Cato went to the baths and then to a dinner party with his friends and his son. A philosophical debate sprung up over whether or not only men who'd lived spotlessly moral lives could be considered free. Cato argued so strongly in this vein that everyone thought he might be suicidal. Because Cato was not being subtle here. Cato was dropping some real hints that he might need some help. And as Cato went on, everyone else became dejected and silent. Whereupon, Cato tried to alleviate their suspicions that he might have some inclinations towards suicide. And he did this by drawing them all out with questions and trying to pivot the conversation to what was happening in the city. He's trying to change the subject here. And it's just like, Cato, the ship has sailed. Like, you've already decided to not be subtle about how you feel about what's happening here. And now everyone's freaked out. And you don't get to just put that genie back in the bottle here. The people around him were really concerned. Cato's son and friends made sure there were no sharp objects in his room. They even took his sword. Cato went to bed, but not before embracing his son and friends with particular intensity. He warned his son never to get involved in politics because he just could not stop dropping hints. And then, when his friends and family finally left, he picked up Plato's Phaedo, which had been conspicuously placed near the bed and which discusses the immortality of the soul, and he started to read. Cato read for a long time and then called his servant to fetch his sword. The servant didn't bring the sword because he'd been ordered not to bring Cato anything pointy. And when Cato called for it more harshly, his son and friends ran into his room, embraced him, and begged him not to take his own life. But Cato harangued them for leaving him defenseless in the face of Caesar's approach. And after a desperate argument, the sword was finally sent in, carried by a small child. Now I am my own master, Cato said, taking the sword. But he made no move to harm himself. He finished his 
his book and then fell asleep, but his son and friends didn't dare sleep. They were on suicide watch. In the middle of the night, Cato woke and sent for a doctor to treat a swollen hand he'd gotten from punching someone who'd refused to give him a sword. Is that true? That's part of the story. Anyway, the summons for the doctor made everyone relax. Why would Cato bring a doctor in to heal his hand if he wanted to commit suicide? It looked like Cato wanted to live. His dark night of the soul was over. In the morning, the birds were singing. The house was quiet. Dawn had just cracked the sky. And while everyone slept, Cato drew his sword and stabbed himself just below the breast. But with his hurt hand, he didn't have the strength to deliver a killing blow. Plutarch tells us that, quote, in his death struggle, he fell from the couch and made a loud noise by overturning a geometrical abacus that stood near. Because, of course, there was a geometrical abacus inconveniently placed. (laughs) Of course there was an abacus. I mean, of course. I don't know why that strikes me as funny, but it does. It's just abacuses in general are funny. (laughs) (laughs) Anything to lighten the mood here. His servants heard the noise and cried out, and his son at once ran in, together with his friends. They saw that he was smeared with blood and that most of his bowels were protruding. That is not funny, Jen. No, that's deeply upsetting. This is really heartbreaking. Yeah, and I'm laughing about it because I'm an asshole. You are. (laughs) (laughs) Not gonna gonna disagree. But that he still had his eyes open and was alive, and they were terribly shocked. But the physician went to him and tried to replace his bowels, which remained uninjured, and to sew up the wound. Accordingly, when Cato recovered and became aware of this, he pushed the physician away, tore his bowels with his hands, rent the wound still more, and so died. Cato chose to die rather than live at Caesar's mercy. When Caesar heard the news, he said, quote, Cato, I begrudge you your death as you begrudged me the sparing of your life. Caesar returned to Rome in 46 BC. While he'd been gone, Mark Antony had been raising money for him by buying up the properties of Pompey's old allies for dirt cheap at auctions and selling them off at a profit. Caesar used the funds to pay his soldiers and finance his wars. It's here, I think, that Caesar sold one extremely valuable property to his longtime mistress, Servilia. We meet her in Julius Caesar and the Devil's Three-Way. Servilia was one of the highest-ranking women in Rome, and Caesar had been hooking up with her for more than 20 years, mostly while both of them were married to other people, because that is Caesar's specialty. Yeah, well, Caesar and Servilia were really the same kind of person. You know, they were both very political, they were both outdoor cats, and neither of them wanted to put any ties on each other, but they also probably had a lot in common and supported each other. I don't know. Maybe not. I don't know. I'm conjecturing here. Servilia was a powerful back-channel politician in her own right and was perhaps Caesar's longest-standing relationship. Caesar sold one of these extremely pricey villas to her at dirt cheap, even though he needed the funds for his soldiers, just showing that after all this time and despite his intense affair with Cleopatra, Caesar still had a thing for Servilia. So, while he was in Africa fighting Cato, Caesar was also rumored to have had a brief affair with another queen, Eunoe, the wife of the king of Mauritania, a Roman ally who'd fought with him against Scipio. Caesar showered both Eunoe and her husband with gifts before he left. So, if you believe the rumors, Caesar had definitely not been faithful to Cleopatra after their affair. It was one of those things where it was super intense, but you both conspicuously do not bring up whether or not to make it exclusive, and the mindfuckery ensues. And even so, not long after he returned to Rome from fighting Cato, Cleopatra came to visit. Her coming was an event in itself. 
She would have traveled in a lavish flotilla, and she would not have traveled light. Wherever Cleopatra goes, she goes in a lavish flotilla. Oh my god, that's amazing. Yes. She brought gifts, priceless fabrics, astronomically expensive spices like cinnamon, glowing alabaster jars of exotic fragrances, even animals such as leopards. She brought an immense retinue of advisors, philosophers, royal chefs, servants, seamstresses, and tailors, doctors, scribes, and more. Also in her retinue, her one-year-old son, Caesarian, as well as her boy king husband brother, because... This family makes the Julian Claudians look normal. Ptolemy the 14th. Caesar put Cleopatra up at his estate on the west bank of the Tiber, a swanky address removed from the center of town, lavishly appointed with a mile-long garden. It was outside the sacred boundary of the city, and Cleo stayed there because kings weren't allowed to enter Rome and neither were queens, although who did and didn't get to enter Rome at any given time was kind of a loosely enforced rule. But at this point, they were really enforcing it. If Cleopatra was hoping to recapture the magic of their initial affair, she may have been disappointed. The bubble she'd been in with Caesar, blockaded in her palace, both of them at war, having sex in every one of the hundred guest rooms, and then the halcyon romance of their cruise down the Nile was burst. In Rome, she was not exactly welcomed a foreign queen taking up residence across town from her lover and his wife. Caesar's main residence was right in the center of town with his wife Calpurnia, but that didn't stop him from spending a lot of time with Cleopatra. And this was kind of a scandal. Caesar was well known for his affairs, but this one was with a foreign queen who had already born his son, and Caesar was flaunting his affair in everyone's face. We don't know much about what Calpurnia thought of all this, but we are dying to know. Yeah, if only she'd written some memoirs. I'd read the shit out of Calpurnia's memoirs. Me too. But both Caesar and Cleopatra were probably too busy, at least initially, to care about the catty gossip. Cicero, hold your tongue. Because they had a party to plan. Because they were party planners. They were both such party planners. Well, you kind of have to be when you're a populist. Like, that is part of your job, giving the people a great party. Exactly. Everybody is bread and circuses. Here, let's have a great party so you don't realize how much you're getting screwed. So the minute Caesar rolled into town after defeating Cato, he threw himself not one, not two, not three, but four triumphs. And yes... Theoretically, the Senate had to grant you a triumph, but Caesar had packed the Senate with his friends and they were eager to rubber stamp whatever he wanted and heap honors upon his head, most likely because he wasn't enacting prescriptions. Everyone was ready to honor Caesar just for not killing them. The bar was so low, just so low. Practically underground. Pretty much. The other question I have here is like, if you're throwing your own triumph, does it even count? I mean, the thing is, when you totally take over an entire country and get rid of the Senate and declare yourself dictator for the next 10 years, who's going to throw you a party if not you? Right. There's no actual, like, granting body of triumphs where the, the granting is meaningful. Like, they're just going to give you your triumph. And to be fair, they were all his friends and they all said he could have not one, not two, not three, but four giant parties. So... Sure. We'll give you that, Caesar. <laughs> sure. I mean, they're all puppets, but, you know... <laughs> Caesar is so never talking to us again. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I think he'll make an appearance for the final episode in the series, but we'll have to really, you know, do some placating. <laughs> I, I'm not placating that asshole. He knows what it's like here on Ancient History Fangirl. <laughs> okay. Anyway, admits the most epic feasts and gladiatorial games because Julius Caesar owned his own gladiator school. Yeah, that was his side hustle. It was totally his side hustle. I mean, when you're taking millions of people or thousands of people into slavery, I guess 
some of them could be gladiators. I actually think the millions is more accurate. I have so much rage about this, but anyway. So quite possibly with Cleopatra's help and money, because when you devalue your currency and get to keep that gold, you have more money. Caesar planned not one, not two, not three, but four consecutive triumphs for his campaigns in Gaul, Egypt, Numidia, and Pontus. Pontus. What is up with Pontus? I mean, it's a little bit ridiculous, the Pontus one, and I'm going to tell you why. That was a campaign Caesar led on his way back from Cleopatra's place to put down a rebellion led by an opportunistic son of Mithridates of Pontus. That Mithridates. The one that Pompey fought. Oh, that one? The one that Pompey, like, beat? The Poison King, who we're totally doing an episode about. The Poison King, who also, his patron god was Dionysus. Oh my god, you and Dionysus, you can't stop. And will never stop. I will never stop. Can't stop, won't stop with the Dionysus. Also, don't eat the Pontic ducks, kids. The ducks in Pontus are poisonous. There's not enough orange sauce to make them edible. I mean, it'd have to be poison orange sauce, and that's not good for anybody. Anyway, Mithridates of Pontus had a son, and he was trying to seize back his father's kingdom while Caesar was busy doing other things. And this was like a five-minute campaign. Caesar rolled into town, put down the rebellion in like five minutes or so, and later summed the whole thing up to one of his officers in a famous three-word sentence, Veni, Vidi, Vici. I came, I saw, I conquered. I mean, I gotta say, I'm a copywriter, and I know a good tagline when I see one. That is a great tagline. That is a great tagline, and that is why, to this day, that saying exists in, like, you know, it's come down to us. Right. I came, I saw, what did you do? I napped. (laughs) (laughs) Jen came, she saw, she napped. I came, I saw, I coffeed. You know, there's so many ways to bastardize this, right? I came, I saw, I fangirled. Duh! This is what we're doing (laughs) in this podcast right now. We're coming, we're seeing, and we're fangirling. The triumphal procession started on September 21st and ended on October 2nd. That is an 11-day long parade. That is a long-ass parade. Do you know what he did, essentially? He gave himself his own Saturnalia. Yeah, he kind of did. I mean, how long is Saturnalia, right? Like 14 days? Yeah, I think at his heyday, it was like 14 days. He gave himself his own Saturnalia. Saturn is roaming the streets, all of the olive oil, greasy chaos. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta grease up the city for Caesar's return. (laughs) We laugh, but there probably was quite a few people who did need some convincing that Caesar's return was a good thing. Oh, I'm sure that like half the city or if not more. So we went into detail on what a triumph was like in Julius Caesar and the Devil's Throughway, possibly the most appropriately named episode we've ever done. In Caesar's parade, if you were a spectator, first off, you would see a lot of bling. Carts and carts of gold and silver and jewels. And I'm already just chilling in there and plates and jewelry. No, I've moved on to the jewelry. Just swimming in it like Scrooge McDuck. <laughs> There's also armor and weapons and shields and chariot fittings. This is what I'm excited about the war stuff. Oh, please. I'm dripping in beautiful, like, inlaid gold and jewels and just, like, all the shiny. Jen's, like, riding. She snuck into one of those carts. How does Caesar feel about you riding in one of his jewelry carts in his triumph, Jen? He's not going to let me in there. We've already established this. You're not going in there. I mean, I think as long as I, like, don't make a big show about it and just, like, stay towards the bottom, maybe breathe through, like, a little paper straw, he's cool with it. (laughs) You have to hide underneath the mounds and mounds of jewelry. But he has said if anyone sees my red hair, that's it. I'm going to lose my head. Or go down into the horrible hole. Oh, he's going to put you in the hole? Just, like, you know, cover it with jewels. Like, I mean, you know, you don't have to seem a little gingerhead. Knowing you, this is not such a bad deal for you. (laughs) Like, you're probably happy with it. 
<laughs> You're like, yes, I would like to lie in case in jewelry with like only a, a straw to breathe through. <laughs> totally fine. I'm down. He said if I make it through the whole triumph, I can keep one small thing. I'm like a kid in a candy store. I'm jealous. Whatever. So some of this treasure had possibly been looted from sacred oak grove shrines in Gaul, which is just not okay, Caesar. Which is not okay. Now you feel like an asshole for wanting to roll around in it, don't you? Kind of do. <laughs> We're just moving on. So during his Pontic triumph, Caesar displayed a placard with his famous tagline, I came, I saw, I conquered, because he was literally branding himself during his Pontic triumph. I mean, the Pontic war just lasted so, like it was just basically nothing. It was super fast. Like it's dumb to throw a triumph for that, but it's just basically so he could get that tagline out there. It was so he could get his tagline, like this is the Julius Caesar brand. I know you're going to think later on that it has got something to do with stabbing, but it doesn't. You'd also see paintings and dioramas of important scenes from Caesar's wars, and my eyes are rolling. There was reputedly a painting of Scipio committing suicide and Cato tearing his stomach open with his own hands. The crowd loved the bling, but these dioramas made the public a little queasy. Understandably, I feel the same way. Since Scipio and Cato were respected Roman citizens, and this kind of feels a lot like rubbing salt into their collective psyche. Yeah, I think Caesar had absolutely no idea at this point what was and was not socially appropriate. Well, how could he? He had begun his life as someone who stood up to a dictator, and he was getting to this point in his life becoming the new dictator, totally flouting everything so that he could run Rome. Also featured in these parades would have been high-ranking prisoners. Vercingetorix made his last appearance in open air before being strangled down in the horrible hole, and we talk about that more in part three of Vercingetorix, All You Love Must Burn. And if you don't know what the horrible hole is, it's the Mamertine prison, and I can't talk about it because my brain breaks at, like, how it worked. So I do encourage you to go listen to that episode and find out more. It's very cheery. In the Egyptian triumph came Arsinoe, Cleopatra's sister, walking behind a model of the great lighthouse of Alexandria that had been set on fire. The public was moved to great pity by her fate, and after some public pressure, Caesar spared her life, even though Cleopatra wanted her executed. He sent Arsinoe to the Temple of Artemis at Ephesus in Greece, where she took refuge. And that is one of the wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Artemis at Ephesus. Caesar's legions also marched in these parades, and I just have to stop here and talk about the songs that they sang. Oh, please tell us about the songs. Oh my god, the songs! That was the best part. During a triumph, it was basically tradition for the legions to sing body and offensive songs making fun of their own general. It was a time when military discipline was somewhat relaxed. Caesar's soldiers sang songs exhorting the men of Rome to lock up their wives and daughters because here comes the bald adulterer. <laughs> It's kind of adorable. They also sang about how Caesar used public funds to pay for sex workers in Gaul, hooked up with the Queen of Egypt, and definitely did it with King Nicomedes all that time ago. And we've talked about this before, but Caesar was very sensitive about his time with Nicomedes and actually went so far as to take a public oath that nothing happened between him and Nicomedes. Wink, wink. I mean, me thinks the Caesar doth protest too much. I definitely think the Caesar doth protest too much. And also it's possible that the time with Nicomedes was just really, really special and he didn't want people to make fun of it. Totally. So the grand finale of this song was a verse about how if you do right, you'll be punished. But if you do wrong, you'll be king. This was referring to how Caesar disobeyed all the rules of the Roman Republic and rolled into town as its conqueror, its dictator for life. Yeah, remember, this is a people who thought kings were the devil. Yes, and we talk about that in Julius Caesar and the Pirate's Ransom. So this verse was shouted all together by the whole army at the top of their lungs. And it was just a little on the nose. And also, 
really terrifying to have an entire army telling you that if you do right, you're going to be punished. But if you do wrong, we're going to come on in here and we're going to make ourselves king. We are the conquerors. Yeah, it's almost like he's singing about the conquest of his own city in these triumphs. It's kind of scary. It's kind of scary and it totally reminds me, spoilers, of the end of Game of Thrones. So this was just a great time, wasn't it, Jen? (laughs) Totally. It was a great time. Everybody sang along and clapped because if they didn't, a dragon might come for them. I mean, Caesar. Caesar would come for them. Hooray, Caesar. Please don't kill us. Please don't kill us. I mean, keep giving us food, but also, like, don't let your soldiers decide to run rampage on our city. During his Gallic triumph, something happened that could have been a very bad omen. The axle on Caesar's chariot wheel broke, and Caesar was almost thrown out of his own cart. A replacement had to be found in a hurry, and Caesar wound up climbing up the steps to the Temple of Jupiter on his knees, perhaps to rectify the bad omen. In between the triumphs, there were feasts and parties and gladiatorial games. And here's another place where I have to pause and go on a giant detour about what happened during these games, because it was all extremely extra. Caesar threw feasts and games to end all feasts and games. Feasts and games! More than 22,000 tables and feasting couches laden with very expensive food and wine, Caesar spared no expense. And at one point, he even threw an extra banquet with even more expensive food because he felt that the earlier feast with the earlier expensive food hadn't been expensive enough. So Caesar threw funeral games in honor of his daughter, Julia. Chariot racing and gladiatorial games like the city had never seen before. And remember, Caesar had a gladiatorial school, so the gladiators who are participating in these games would probably have been purchased by the city or by Caesar. <laughs> like, he's actually, like, using this as another way to make money for himself because someone had to pay for the gladiators to fight. Good point. So many athletic events were going on at any one time that extra temporary venues had to be set up on the field of Mars. Five days alone were dedicated to animal fights, during which 400 lions were slaughtered, and that makes us incredibly ragey. Caesar also introduced a brand new animal to the Roman public, brand new to them anyway, and this animal was the giraffe which he called a camel leopard. I mean, I just have to laugh at that because the giraffe does not look like either a camel or a leopard. It doesn't. I mean, I suppose giraffes have like skinnier legs like camels do than horses do. And it has spots. Right, but lots of other animals also have spots. Like, I just don't see it. Look, I can't really get into the mind of Caesar, and I don't want to. Well, it's possible Caesar let Mark Antony name this animal, and Mark Antony just barfed out a name, and it was Camel Leopard. It's quite possible, and it's also possible that this animal was a gift from Cleopatra to Caesar. Yeah, that's right. Well, didn't she tell him what its actual name was? I mean, maybe she did, and he was like, well, now it's a camel leopard. Giraffe sounds great. Cool story, Cleo. I'm going to call it a camel leopard. I'm just going to go with whatever Mark Antony barfed up this morning. (laughs) Anyway, the human fights were even more extravagant. There was plenty of gladiatorial single combat, but there was also a pitched battle between 500 infantry, 30 cavalry, and 20 elephants on each side. These were King Juba's elephants, and none of them were harmed, which we're very happy about. And we talk more about what happened to Caesar's herd in War Elephants Part 2, which we will not stop plugging. Yeah, go listen to War Elephants Part 2. Once you've listened to it enough, we'll stop plugging it. We'll never stop talking about War Elephants Part 2. It's just always (laughs) going to keep coming up. As the crowning glory of these games, Caesar ordered part of the field of Mars flooded and had full-size triremes brought in for pitched naval battle. Were these robot rowboats, Jen? Robot robots? Robot rowboats. Robot robots? (laughs) 
<laughs> the people fighting in these huge robot rowboats were mostly war captives and condemned prisoners. However, some high-ranking people fought in them as well. At one point, Caesar had two aristocrats, one of them a former lawyer and senator, fight to the death in the arena. I think they were Pompey supporters. I mean, they had to have been Pompey supporters. There were other funny moments. Caesar strongly insisted that a local playwright he liked, Liberius, perform one of his own plays on stage. Liberius did it reluctantly, but got the satisfaction of seeing the entire audience turn and stare at Caesar when he spoke the line, quote, he who many fear must therefore fear many. Caesar didn't even notice, though. Caesar had a habit of reading and dictating letters while he was at public performances, which annoyed people who felt he should be paying attention. So this was a scene where basically everybody was staring super hard at Caesar, hoping he would pick this hint up. And Caesar's just looking at his phone. Pretty much. Which, Caesar, that's not the way you should do things. Like, that's going to get you some rage. If you're at family dinner or, like, I don't know, a state event, don't pay attention to your phone. Pay attention to what's going on. Look happy for the crowd. You're the one who decides decided you needed 11 days of feasting. You're the one who decided to throw Saturnalia in the middle of September when, you know, it's not Saturnalia time. You're the one who pestered Liberius into doing this play in the first place, and now you're not even going to pay attention? You're going to, I don't know what, you're doing, like, angry birds on your phone or whatever? Get with it, Caesar. There's no gram that's good enough that you should be missing this play right now, Caesar. Come on. Unless it's on our Instagram, Ancient History Fangirl, in which case I totally get it. <laughs> um, <laughs> do we, though? <laughs> totally. Hey, Jen puts a lot of work into our Instagram, Okay. Do I? I don't. <laughs> it must be you. No, it's definitely the ghost of Caesar. He's very bored. <laughs> he'd be into social. Oh my god, he'd be so good at social. Man, we would have like 20 million followers by now. I came, I saw, I trolled. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'm gonna bring us back to the story. During these festivities, the city was flooded with people. Visitors from out of town pitched tents in the streets and anywhere there was a scrap of free space. Suetonius tells us that a number of people were trampled to death in the excitement, including two senators. Not everyone loved these lavish banquets. Some were horrified at all the bloodshed of the games. Not everyone liked the civic disruption, and others were horrified at the cost. Caesar showered his soldiers with rewards, between 5,000 and 20,000 denarii each, depending on rank. This was more than what a single soldier might might earn during his entire service. And we've talked about the length of service before for soldiers in the Roman army. And that could be anywhere from what, like 10 to 20 years? Yeah, I think it depended on the time period and what part of the army you were in, but 10 to 20-ish years or something. Yeah, so he's giving them just in this one parade more than they're going to make between 10 and 20 years of serving. I just, I needed to pause so we could just get that in our brains. He also bestowed money, grain, and olive oil on the civilian populace, which pissed off his soldiers. They did not like Caesar sharing the wealth that they had helped him earn, although a lot of this wealth quite possibly came from Cleopatra when she paid back her dad the flute monster's debts. Right, because bear in mind, Cleopatra had just settled all of her dad's debts and then had to, like, rejigger her currency to make up for it. Exactly. And then was like, and now I'm going to go party with Caesar for a bit. A huge riot broke out among the soldiers about how Caesar chose to distribute his money. And during this riot, Caesar marched right into the crowd, seized one of the ringleaders with his bare hands, and dragged him off to be executed. Because he was Julius fucking Caesar, let's not forget. Two more rioters were hauled up on a dais and ceremonially beheaded by the priest of Mars. This is actually a very rare instance of human sacrifice in ancient Rome. The Romans liked to feel superior to other ancient communities around them by 
by claiming that those people did human sacrifice and the Romans didn't because they were just so moral. This calmed the riots down. And later, Caesar hung the heads up outside his office. Who does this remind you of, Jen? It's his office, the Rostra, because I have real strong feels about this. Nobody isn't picking up what he's putting down here. (laughs) Except maybe Caesar, because at this point in time, you have to think, how are you not getting that you seem more and more like a dictator? He's like, I literally have no idea what you're talking about. Excuse me while I go make myself dictator for 10 years. Is Caesar going to appear and defend himself? Not right now. He's still pissed at us. He said he will possibly appear in the final episode. I'm just giving the guy a chance. You know, he doesn't deserve a chance, but I'm giving it to him. I mean, he feels very strongly that he does not need to defend himself. Like, who else was going to do this magnanimous work that was needed to be doing? Oh, well, that is totally something he would say, isn't it? So I'm going to let him just stay where he is and he can come back for the stabby stab. I need to get better about allowing guests on the the podcast. You do. And hopefully next season we'll have some ghosts who aren't me channeling Caesar. And guess not ghosts. Season four is the motto. Guess not ghosts. Season four. We're going to have more ghost guests. That Jenny is nice too for once. It really depends on who it is and whether I like them. I mean, Kukulin and you, whoo, get a room. Kukulin and I are like this with the two fingers super close. We're BFFs. He fights my battles. I don't know why. It just... Kukulin and a Kukulin. Anyway, a good time was had, in other words, by all, except the people who got beheaded or trampled in the crowd or killed in the gladiatorial games or if you were a lion. Caesar definitely had a good time, though. At nightfall, after the final banquet, Caesar walked home garlanded in flowers amidst a crowd of elephants bearing torches and an immense throng of almost the whole adoring populace. It was official. Caesar was back and Rome was his city now. But it wasn't exactly Cleopatra city. She probably didn't attend the triumphs because she wasn't allowed to cross the magical boundary of Rome unless she did it in disguise because she's a queen and Cleopatra's not going in disguise for Caesar's party. Yeah, I mean, she did introduce herself to Caesar in disguise, so I don't know. Maybe she borrowed a fake mustache and snuck over the line and went to her own fucking party that she paid for. It's quite possible she had paid for these triumphs, so maybe she did. Maybe she slapped on the mustache and was like, if you're gonna party and have my green and drink my wine and all my cool shit, then I'm gonna party. But... It would have been awkward for her if she did attend because the soldiers were singing dirty songs about her as well and her sister had been paraded through the streets in chains. Which, on one hand, good because Arsinoe had been Cleopatra's rival, but also a little awkward because if things had tilted just a little bit in any other direction, that would be Cleopatra walking in chains through the streets. And she had to know that. Cleopatra embodied a lot of things Romans hated, especially Roman men. She lived up to all the quote-unquote decadent stereotypes of foreign rulers. The ancient Romans looked down at the lavish perfumes, sumptuous silks, and other luxuries that Cleopatra wore and surrounded herself with. Not to mention, there was the role of women in ancient Rome. In Rome, good women were supposed to be not often seen and not often heard. The power they wielded was very much behind the scenes. Modesty, sexual purity, and silence were high virtues in women, and Cleopatra flouted all of those social norms. No doubt she was direct, confident, intellectual, unapologetically sexual, and unafraid to make even smart men feel like fools. Plus, she was a queen, and the Romans didn't like those any more than they liked kings. Cleopatra was the undisputed ruler of a kingdom in her own right. She outranked all these assholes, including Caesar. But to the Romans, she wasn't much more than a foreign courtesan who put on arrogant airs, and she was also a queen, which was basically the devil, and that must have rubbed a lot of Roman patricians the wrong way. Yeah, I can just imagine them clutching their pearls. Yeah. Still, most likely the aristocracy of Rome was extremely curious about Cleopatra, and many paid social calls. Among those was Jenny's friend, Cicero. And he was not friendly, this was very salty. 
my middle school buddy. Do you want to tell us what happened here, Jenny? Because I feel like you should tell us. Oh, can I? (laughs) You can. (laughs) Here's Cicero and me giggling in the corner of the school lunch table in middle school, cattily gossiping about Cleopatra. Being such mean girls. Whatever, Jen. We're going to do what we want. Die, Caesar! (laughs) You just run along to Caesar and let us gossip in the corner like we want. I can't stand the queen, he announced to a friend of his at one point. He whispered in my ear at middle school lunch. Over your Lunchables. He likes the pizza one. (laughs) He whispered in my ear over Lunchables. The cause of his rift with her appears to be... (laughs) Appears to be that she agreed to loan him a volume from the library at Alexandria, a place Cicero probably would have gnawed off his own left arm to get the chance to visit. And then she forgot. Because Cicero was not top of mind at the moment, okay? No, she had other things she needed to do, like rule a country and deal with Julius Caesar's need to throw himself four triumphs. And her having to devalue her currency to pay for all that shit? Quote, he goes on, sipping his chocolate milk. (laughs) The queen... The queen's insolence, too, when she was living in Caesar's trans-Tiberine villa, I cannot recall without a pang, he added. I won't have anything to do, therefore, with that lot. But regardless of Cicero's salty opinions, which nobody asked for and he totally had to tell everyone about. I asked for it. (laughs) So it was very clear Caesar was still completely enamored with Cleopatra. In Egypt, the pharaohs were considered gods and goddesses on earth. And Cleopatra was a goddess as well as a queen. She had a personal cult that was strongly associated with the goddess Isis, who was in turn associated with the Roman goddess Venus. Caesar dedicated a temple of Venus in the forum to her, and then had a life-sized gold statue of Cleopatra erected in the temple, next to the statue of Venus, just in case anyone missed it. Just in case anyone missed the giant hint about how in love with Cleopatra he is. Yeah, it's very clear now. Caesar's family was always kind of associated with Venus, but now, no doubt because of his affair with Cleopatra, Caesar found a late-in-life devotion to Venus. Well, his family always claimed that they were, like, descendants of Venus. So, like, this is all putting it all together in a real big bow. I mean, I think that, you know, this might have been something that they talked about on their first date. Like, oh my god, you're associated with Venus? I'm associated with Isis. So much in common. So much in common. And also, I'm a goddess, but um, you're not. You're definitely not. (laughs) (laughs) And that's where the similarities end. That's where the similarities end. I'm a queen. You're... Not. (laughs) I'm young. You're... Not. North of young. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so Caesar had found this late-in-life devotion to Venus mainly because he'd fallen in love with Cleopatra, who was associated with Isis. He was fond of telling people that he'd, quote, received from her a kind of bloom of youth because he was in his 50s dating a woman 31 years younger than him. Oh my god, he had a midlife crisis. That's what I'm saying. What does this look like, Jen? Sorry, it took me a while. We've rehearsed the script and only just dropped on me that this is the point in the story where Caesar buys his fancy sports car and divorces his first wife to marry the young girl. Oh, he didn't divorce anybody. He's still got Calpurnia around. There's still Servilia. Like, he's got, you know, he's definitely, like, the Magic D is in full effect in case anyone has any questions about the Magic D. It is fully operational. 
Well, I mean, that magic deal alone makes him, you know, obviously someone who is, like, beloved by Venus. He would have given that to him. I mean, it totally makes sense now that he has a magic D because Venus. Anyway, so he had this ring that I'm trying to tell you about with an image of Venus on it and made Venus his watchword during every battle and every other time he needed a watchword, which kind of defeats the purpose of a watchword. It's like when you set the same thing for your password for everything, which I definitely don't do. No, I've never done that before. No, my password is definitely not Venus either. Or Caesar. Or Caesar. <laughs> Caesar. <laughs> He'd love it if my password for everything was Caesar. He's like, well, what else would it be? <laughs> I mean, don't tell them, Jenny. This podcast does get listened to like by a couple people. <laughs> there are people besides my dad who listen to the podcast. <laughs> Caesar had Cleopatra and her brother awarded the status of friend of the Roman people, an honor her father had spent untold fortunes on bribes to get in his day. And Caesar spent every waking free minute he had with Cleopatra in her villa. But one thing he wouldn't do was declare her son his heir, or even acknowledge the boy was his. Because Caesar was really good at giving with one hand while taking with the other when it came to Cleopatra. Cleopatra had been very open about the fact that Caesarion was Caesar's son. She'd named him after Caesar and publicly declared him the son of Caesar on multiple occasions. Caesar, by contrast, did not acknowledge the boy as his at least in public. Who knows what he was telling Cleopatra behind closed doors. So Caesar had thrown his triumphs and he was just settling in when he had to leave Rome again, because why would he stay in Rome for any period of time when he could let Antony run it and vomit all over the forum? The forum just needs to be mopped at this point. Needs some sawdust first. <laughs> it needs, <laughs> needs like a really good scrub down. In November, less than a month after his last triumph, Pompey's sons, Sextus and Nias, along with Labianus, Caesar's one-time right-hand man in Gaul started kicking up trouble. They'd linked up with some of Pompey's old legions and drove out Caesar's governor in Spain. The governor requested Caesar's help, and Caesar had to respond to the call. I don't know why he couldn't just send Mark Antony, but he had to go himself. Because the forum now smells like barf, and he just can't <laughs> with this place anymore. <laughs> Before he left, though, he said goodbye to Cleopatra. She planned to leave when Caesar did, because awkward. But according to Suetonius, quote, he did not let her leave until he had laden her with high honors and rich gifts, and he allowed her to give his name to the child which she bore. That's right. Caesar finally admitted that Caesarian was his son, and we totally have to side-eye this because it doesn't sound like a thing Caesar would do, but I kind of hope he did because, you know, you've been kind of a deadbeat dad here, Caesar, and this is your kid. Actually, do kind of doubt that this really happened. Suetonius is writing like a few hundred years in the future from when all this happened. Yeah, well, well, he's contemporary to Tiberius and Augustus, so yeah. Right, like a few generations up. I don't think this shows up in any of the other ancient sources that I read. I could be wrong on that, but I don't think it does. And there are reasons why that I don't want to give in any I don't want to give any spoilers, but there are reasons coming up in the next episode that we're gonna talk about that I think make it kind of unlikely that Caesar publicly claimed Caesarian. And I'll point it out when we get to it. Anyway, so after heaping honors on Cleopatra's head and possibly, but probably not, claiming Caesarian as his son, Caesar booked it to Spain. He traveled more than 1,500 miles in less than a month, which is a lot of walking, bringing with him the 10th and a few other legions. Because I guess he's fine with the 10th now, or the 10th is just super eager to prove themselves again. Totally. They're now his buddies again. He arrived at the start of December in typical Caesar fashion, still managing to take these people by surprise in the middle of winter. It just does not end. Surprise! <laughs> he appears in a puff of smoke and everyone's surprised. It just, like, it's winter. What do they think is going to happen? I mean, if it was me, I'd be like, so it's going to snow, probably. I mean, mountain passes will be unpassable. 
festival, and Caesar's going to rock up from the mountains. I don't know how, but he's going to do it. He's going to deliberately pick the hardest way to get here, and he's going to use that way. Yeah, he's going to go via the seas, which are pretty much unpassable this time of year because they're so treacherous. He's going to just roll up and be like, me and the tenth are here. Let's get this show started. It's in the commentaries that that's how he does this, and everyone is still surprised. Who has the copies of the commentaries, and why are they not being disseminated more widely? That's all I have to say about this. Maybe at this point they're all at Alexandria. Maybe Cleopatra was like, I shall hold on to all of this for posterity. And also, please stop telling everyone your game of war. Well, yeah, but nobody reads the commentaries anyway, so I guess it's not that big of a deal. Anyway, it was a short campaign. As usual, Caesar was outnumbered. He had eight legions to the Pompey brothers, 13. Caesar was forced into a frontal attack, and his watchword was Venus, because it's always Venus. You guys know what his watchword is going to be. I could probably figure out how to get into Caesar's bank account or all his social and like, you know, whatever, like his HBO Go. We know what his password is. We do, but I also have to remind you that he is long dead and has none of those things. <laughs> Pompey's son's army, by the way, was made up mostly of people who had surrendered to Caesar after the civil wars with Pompey and had gone on to take up arms against him again. Caesar had a policy of clemency if he caught you one time, but if he took you prisoner a second time for fighting against him after he'd pardoned you, well, shame on him, right? And he would definitely put you to death without blinking twice about it. He was stone cold about that. These Pompeian legions knew they would not get lucky a second time. At the final battle, Pompey's legions held the high ground, and Caesar wanted to take it from them. But for some reason, Caesar's dauntless troops were daunted, perhaps because of the severity of the frontal assault, Perhaps because the hill was really tall and they didn't want to go up it in full armor because I feel you there. It's like, really? You want us to run up that wearing this? Are you kidding me? Exactly. And perhaps because of the desperation of the enemy, the troops hesitated in fear. Kind of like way at the beginning, they'd hesitated in fear at marching toward Ariovistus all that time ago. And you can find out about that in Vercingetorix's All You Love Must Burn Part 1. Yes, I like how we're saying that super fast now. <laughs> Caesar had to pull out all the stops to get them to charge up the hill. And according to Appian, quote, he ran up and encouraged his soldiers. He took his helmet off his head and shamed them to their faces and exhorted them. As that abated nothing of their fear, he seized a shield from a soldier and said to the officers around him, this shall be the end of my life and your military service. So dramatic, Caesar. So dramatic. Then he sprang forward and advanced of his line of battle toward the enemy so far that he was only 10 feet distant from them. I mean, and that's a real, like, putting them to shame move. Like, they won't even follow him. So he's like, fine, I'll do it myself. And then he, like, runs out ahead of them and lets the enemy focus on him. Exactly. And some 200 missiles were aimed at him, some of which he evaded while others were caught on his shield. And again, like, this is their commander. Everyone is throwing stuff at him. Everyone is trying to kill their commander because his soldiers are too cowardly to go up with him. He's shaming the fuck out of them right now. Come on, 10th. I thought we were in this for life. 10th for life. Thought you wanted to prove yourselves, 10th. Where's your, where's your mojo now? <laughs> what am I saying? I have no idea. Then each of the tribunes ran toward him and took position by his side, and the whole army rushed forward and fought the entire day, advancing and retreating by turns, until, toward evening, Caesar, with difficulty, won the victory. It was reported that he said that he had often fought for victory, but that this time he had fought even for existence. 
After that battle, Pompey's sons and Labienus fled to Corduba. Caesar had to follow. He could not have these people just popping up again later like a freaking whack-a-mole situation. He ordered a siege of Corduba, took the city, and in order to prevent the rebels from fleeing, quote from Appian, piled the bodies and arms of the slain together, fastened them to the earth with spears, and encamped behind this ghastly wall. I'm not really sure what is going on here with the ghastly wall, but I guess nobody wants to flee past the ghastly wall, so that's why they have it. It was a decisive defeat for Pompey's sons. One of their generals built a funeral pyre and jumped into it. Labienus was killed in the fighting and his head was sent to Caesar. Pompey's oldest son, Gnaeus, fled to the coast where he took a nasty cut in the sole of his foot while boarding a boat. Gnaeus escaped by sea, but the wound festered and he had to go back on land to have a doctor look at his foot because there are never any doctors on the robot rowboats. The thing was, Caesar had sent assassins after Gnaeus. Fleeing along a rough road which aggravated his wound, Gnaeus was forced to stop. He took a seat beneath a tree, and that's where Caesar's assassins caught up to him. He fell, fending them off, and Caesar got another severed head in the mail. Boy, FedEx is really uh, doing doing some, some work there. My theory on Caesar is that he would really prefer some fancy cheeses and summer sausages and people to keep giving him severed heads in his gift baskets. Or the good Cheetos and a nice cameo. Do you think that's what he wants? He wants the good Cheetos? I bet you can't get the good Cheetos in ancient Rome, so he really wants them. I mean, totally. You also can't get the fancy cheeses and summer sausages, so if we're going to be anachronistic... I think you could probably get sausage and cheese in ancient Rome. I don't think that would be hard. Anyway, Sextus, Pompey's youngest son, escaped and took to the seas, taking up a life of piracy. Arr. Arr. Which is a little bit of irony considering his own father had once eradicated pirates in the Mediterranean. And it's totally a story I'm fascinated by. And if you want us to tell that story, maybe we'll do a mini-sode. Check out our Patreon. Once we hit our goals. Anyway, Caesar returned to Rome in the fall of 45 BC, and he returned victorious. And there was nothing on the horizon but more victories. The Senate was his. He'd packed it with his own friends. Cato was dead. Pompey was dead. The best men had died or were in hiding. Mark Antony was still vomiting. And not long after he returned, Cleopatra returned to Rome with her son and took up residence at Caesar's villa. Finally, Caesar was the leading citizen of Rome, the daddy shark, Caesar the Great. Everything was coming up Caesar and nothing and no one could possibly ruin it. That's it for this week. We'll be back in two weeks. And in the meantime, catch us on social at Ancient Hist Fan on Twitter or Ancient History Fangirl on Facebook or Instagram. And check out our Patreon. We mentioned this in the last episode, but it helps to mention it again. And throughout the entire episode, we have been mentioning our Patreon. It helps to mention it again because this is a great way to help support the podcast. Jenny and I spend nearly all of our free time working on the podcast with very little financial support. And with a little financial support, we could afford to back off our other work for a bit and do some more work for you guys, including those minisodes. Yeah, I really have so many fun ideas for the minisodes. I hope we get to do this. And we have a new patron to shout out this week, Zoe Ruskin. Thank you so much, Zoe. Thank you so much. And if you're not ready to sign up for our Patreon, but you still want to help out, we have a Ko-Fi account. There's also a link to that on our homepage at ancienthistoryfangirl.com. Feel free to make a donation because every little bit helps. Or leave us a nice review. We're still building our audience and good reviews help us in the algorithms and help us get seen. Every little bit helps. Thank you so much.
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.